Welcome to Wise and Nice, a true crime podcast with your hosts Danny Armstrong and Kelly Lee. Please remember that we mean no disrespect to anyone mentioned in this episode or across any of the Wise and Nice platforms. We have an interest in true crime and related topics, and whilst we may offer our own personal views on certain items, it is meant to be educational and as light-hearted as possible. The information we present is collated from research gathered from the internet, and we reference and credit our sources wherever possible. If you've liked what you've heard and want to join in with us, follow us on our socials, Instagram, Wives and Knives the Pod, Twitter, at Knives Wives, and Facebook, Wives and Knives Pod. We also have a little website where we post photographs and other information about the cases that we research. And this is wivesandknives.wixsite.com forward slash my site. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Wives and Knives. Yes, hello everybody. So, <laughs> that sounded really weird. Hello everybody. Hello. Um, so, Kelly, before we start, um, how's your week been? I think you need to tell everyone about the new addition <laughs> to your family. Yes, we have got a kitten and she's absolutely gorgeous. So, so cute. She, she is beautiful. She is. Um, she's called Mimi, although she did start off being called May. But I think Mimi's super cute. Yeah, Mimi's cute. Yeah, she's lovely. Um, I had like two nights when she first came where... I was just like up all night with her because she was crying um but she's totally settled now and she's like really come into herself so it's really nice and then yesterday I got loads of toys delivered for her and then um, like new bowls and everything so yeah she's living her best life oh but I do have quite a funny story about when I collected Mimi so um we decided that we we're going to get Cassidy a kitten and we're going to coincide it because she's going into hospital in just over a week mm-hmm. so we said like it'd be really nice to have like this kitten for when she's back from hospital and you know like it'll just help her yeah it's something it. else to think about totally so we'd, we'd had this and so we decided um, to just go for it so I got in contact with one of my very good friends Beth because she's awesome at this so within sort of like 10 minutes of sending the message that I'm thinking about getting a kitten I had like multiple options and she had like contacted people for me and everything so it's totally amazing so thank you so much Beth so there was this particular out of all the list there was this one particular litter that I was really interested in and then um, there were five little black kittens and I was like absolutely perfect so I made um, contact with the guy that was selling them and um, had a really nice conversation with him he was lovely and I thought oh yeah sounds like a really nice guy and so I made arrangements to pick her up the next night so I've got all these instructions I went to Beth's first and she kindly lent me a cat carrier and everything so I could go and get it so but because obviously true crime she was like, let me know where you're going, like, what's the address, Yeah. message me when you get there and when you're away, etc. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm thinking, to be fair, this is like the adult equivalent of come and look at my, my puppy in the yeah, back of my van. Yeah, it literally is, yeah. So obviously I'm a little bit, you know, aware and like, cons- not concerned, but, you know, like I say, prepared for any situation. I've never met this guy before, so he sounds nice on the phone, but I'm sure... Like Ted Bundy sounded nice yeah. if he had a, you know, was had a mobile, etc. Anyway, so I get to the um, house and I message Beth the address and everything, and I'm like, it seems really nice, everything's fine. So I ring the guy and just say, like, oh hi, I'm here, because the address that he'd given me was slightly different from where I was, but I knew it was the right place. If yeah. that makes sense. So I get, I get there and he steps out, waves at me, like, and I'm like, I'm on the phone, like, oh, is that you? Hi. So I put the phone down, get out of the car, get the cat carrier, and I get to his house because it's like up a bit of a dirt track. All right, yeah. So there's a farm, like a let's call it a farm cottage, mm. and then where he lives is like an add-on annex to the back of the cottage. Yeah. So I have to walk. Like, no one can see me where I'm going. So I'm a bit like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then 
at the side of his house there's like a yard and then there's a large disused barn oh jesus Christ. which is open so i can see inside it mm. and at the back of this disused barn is another little annex which all i can see is a darkened doorway oh jesus christ and what does he say to me you'll never guess what little kittens got out it might have gone in there pointing to the darkened doorway and i'm like and this is where i die yeah so i'm like stepping away from it i'm like do you want to go and have a look then i thought there is nothing in this world that is getting me inside there because that's where he's going to murder me yeah so he's looking around and i'm moving away and i'm looking around all the like the bins and everything thinking this kitten might be hiding there and then he goes to me i think he i'm thinking right he knows i'm not going in there so he'll have to go on his own but he doesn't want to go on his own in there and i'm thinking well why is he suggesting that the kitten's in there but making no move to go in there because i'm not willing to go in so then he goes oh hang on a minute and he pops the bonnet of his car and he goes bloody hell kitten's in there and i'm thinking oh my god now he's gonna like get me to peer this in this is so weird kelly i know right so <laughs> i'm thinking He's going to want me to peer in and then he's going to smash like the bonnet on me and that is how I die. So anyway, he peers in. So I'm like, oh, okay, now I can smash it on him. So it's fine. And the kitten is there. So I'm like, do you want to just reach in and get it? I'm like being very like, this is back. so odd. It is. It gets worse. So the little kitten jumps out and then starts running for the house. So he's like, right, you keep an eye on the cat flap and I'll go in this way. So the next thing he appears with the kitten and I'm like, all right, okay, fine. But he's like very keen to get me to go in the house. And I'm like, I'm not going in the house. It's like, there was absolutely nothing that's getting me in that house. All the, all the other kittens were there. And I was like, maybe I'm just being OTT here, but I'm still not going inside. Anyway, very long story short, he puts the kitten in the cat carrier and everything's fine but then he proceeds to talk to me for 45 minutes so i'm literally stood outside his house with the cat in the cat carrier for 45 minutes and every time i try and get away i cannot get away like it's just another story after another story but he is really nice it sounds really weird but he was a really nice guy and in the end of it i had a great like really interesting chat with him he used to be in the forces so he's like showing me all these things that he used to do when he was in the army and stuff and I well, you know what I'm like I'm just super nice with him I'm like oh that's so interesting anyway it turns out that he is Preston's premier locksmith so he shows me how to pick a lock in 10 seconds and it was really cool <laughs> so yeah the moral of the story I didn't get murdered yeah. I've got a lovely kitten and now I know how to pick a lock in 10 seconds okay the whole of that story i was like what the fuck's gonna happen but also at the start you said a litter of black kittens and your kittens oh gray. yeah so basically <laughs> so i was like she doesn't end up with this cat so i get there and he's like oh um i'm a cat, massive cat lover um, and i really don't want these kittens going to anybody random like i'm kind of vetting people yeah. And I'm like, yes, I'm vetting you too, sir. Um, and he goes, there's one grey kitten, because he has three cats, and all cats have got caught at the same time. Right. So he's got three litters, and the majority of the litters oh, have wow. gone. There's this black litter left. Yeah. But there's been a guy who has been trying to pick this grey, little grey female yeah. up, and he's not turned up for the past three days. Aww. And he did tell me this on the phone yeah. and I was like, well, if I get there and he hasn't arrived and the grey kitten's still there, I'll definitely take the grey one. And if not, I'm happily take a black one. Right. So, yeah, hence I've got a beautiful little grey kitten. Okay, cool. Because I was the whole you way know through, what I, like. I was like, she doesn't <laughs> end up with this cat. So what happened? I had to fight him off and stole the grey kitten. Does that make it better? Yeah. Okay. That was That's what happened. Yeah, honestly, there were so many red flags before I even got there that I was like, am I literally walking into a murder scenario here? Um, but yeah, I know he was like, oh, I've got loads of old-fashioned safes in my house, and I'm thinking I'm going to end up being locked in one of these safes, aren't yeah. I? But no, he was just a very 
eccentric person, but he was really, really nice, and he obviously cares a lot about his cats, so... There we go. Win-win. But yeah, I did at at several points think I was going to get murdered. I think a big percentage of that is our, like, interest in true crime. Definitely. Making us, like... But, you know, it it does happen, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And I was like, literally, there is no... Because my friend Beth had done a lot of the, like, introduce... Yeah. I'd only rung him, like, once. Mm. So I was like, there's going to be no, like, trail to say where I am. (laughs) So I took a picture of, like, the address on my iPad. Mm. Told Gaz where I was going. Told Beth. Told another friend uh, where I was going. So... At least it would have been a bit pretty cut and dried if I yeah. been murdered. But yeah, that's it really. Sorry if that was long-winded and boring. No, it was um, quite exciting. <laughs> Until you survived. And Until really I survived. Yeah. Oh, it started to rain. Um, what about yourself, babe? What have you been up to? Um, it was Mum's birthday on Wednesday. Oh. She was 60 and... Um, we had a really lovely day. Lovely. I had booked her birthday off work well in advance. Coincided with it with a dental checkup because you know. As you do. Need to fit as many things <laughs> as I can. So went to the dentist. Went to my mum's. We had. Oh, sorry. Ooh. My voice just broke like a sixteen-year-old boy. Um, we had a brew and then we had an early lunch before she went to work, and then. I utilised her driveway um, to wash and hoover my car. The wash wasn't very good because I hadn't planned to do this at all. Um, It was just because it was such a sunny day and my mum has the kind of driveway where you can get your car to the house, like right to the house. Um, So I hoovered it all inside with her decent hoover and then I was like, you know what, it's roasting and she's got a hose pipe so I'll wash it. But because I hadn't planned, like, she hadn't got me her car washing stuff out and I didn't know where she kept it. So I just found, like, an obvious small cleaning sponge under the sink. So I used a very <laughs> small sponge to clean my car and a hose pipe. But basically, I was just, I park under trees at work, so I get a lot of um, bird shit on the roof. So I just clean that off, really. It's... I was going to say that. And do you get, like, sap? Yeah, yeah, like also, so it's it's a little better, um, but I felt like I utilised my time well, did a bit of sunbathing in her garden, watched some robins on the trees, because she Aww. puts loads of um, bird seed and stuff out, and then she phoned me, and she was like, Dan, will you come and pick me up? And I was like, yeah, sure, but she'd gone on her bike, so I was wow. like, what's happened to your bike? And she was like, no... Um, I'll have to ride home but they've got her a massive hamper oh. and put loads of things in it um, and she couldn't carry that home so it wasn't her I was giving a lift home it was the hamper um, but she has more chocolate than Capri's factory oh god yeah so much chocolate um, so many bottles of wine and she barely drinks so that's oh. going to keep her for years um, loads of nice things like um like wrinkle cream but like stuff that's yeah. nice like i'd be happy to get that as a gift mm. like some n- yeah some nice little sets and stuff and um, quite a few people have put little gift vouchers in there because it's Aww. very well known that my mum pretty much every day um goes to like one of the few sort of local towns in her area and she might go in a garden centre and she likes to get a coffee or a tea tea or something so she had like a voucher for Costa and little things like that in there and um, some money to treat herself and the whole school had put things in which was really nice and they got all the children to sing happy birthday to her so cute so, yeah she's been in the past couple of months telling the kids she's going to be 40 soon <laughs> brilliant the funniest thing is it's because some of them are so young i bet they just still like, yeah, oh, they right, don't. okay because to them 40 is well old yeah exactly um because they're like four so <laughs> yeah but she said it was cute and Aww. i think it was the right level of fuss because she was like i don't want a fuss i don't want a fuss or anything but then she still liked them singing happy yeah. birthday 
Oh, so that's lovely. That was nice. Um, we went and visited my uncle and had some birthday cake and it was dead sunny. It was just just a dead nice day and then I left um, them lot to it. They were getting a takeaway for tea and I went and met one of my friends in Blackpool and then we ended up having ice cream on the beach till about Aww. 9 o'clock because it was oh, the really hot day yeah. last week. It, it was really nice. We were befriending seagulls with bits of our cones and it was just honestly just such a lovely day and it was only one day off work but it felt like I'd had a really good break. Yeah. So mm. thoroughly enjoyed that and I am going to take my mum to London um, when she finishes work for the summer um, as her like big birthday yeah. treat. So yeah, really nice day. Fabulous. There we go. So <coughs> you've just got like a pretty much 15 minutes, 15 minutes of us yapping on. Well, you know very sorry um but yeah we decided that this week we'd look at sort of cases from the areas we grew up in and sort of things that we'd heard about when we were younger and not thought about for a while and and yeah so um kelly do you want to go first i don't normally go first i feel like you're messing with my routine there yeah, before we start, I just did want to add that it is Father's Day today. It is Father's Day today. I know not everybody has a great relationship with their fathers or might not even have one, but, you know, happy Father's Day to those that... If you um, don't have one, just make one up. That's what I do. Yeah, yours, yeah, yeah. totally. Um, but, yeah, it's. Um, I hope you have a nice day celebrating, if that's what you're doing. Yeah, our dog, um, my husband, Day. Uh, two little presents the card and i got him a nice tea yeah so he's got a nice tea planned and we're going round to my parents-in-law is that the word yeah um to give my father-in-law a hamper nice so yeah very nice i saw your mother-in-law the other day actually did you yeah she's lovely i gave her a big hug i know not seen her for a while so yeah oh actually i got massive mum points um for not getting murdered when i got the kitten because yeah. she had no idea that she was getting one so the next morning i literally woke her up and just like went there's somebody who wants to meet you <gasps> and she just went is that a kitten and i was like yes it's your new kitten and she was like oh my god like that it was so cute Aww. and I was like are you happy she was like no I'm not happy at all I'm over the moon oh. <laughs> that's such a little old woman thing to I say know. that's so it was funny. so cute honestly she's just so chuffed it's brilliant so yeah Aww. but anyway yeah let's crack on off you go okay so um, the case that I'm going to tell you about is a solved case and it is the um, very sad murder of a young girl called Annette Wade. Now, just to sort of give you a bit of background of this story, Annette was actually um, killed a month before I was born in the area that I grew up in and the very sort of like location is surrounded by fields or it was very much in the 80s it was a more of like a country sort of village kind of place it is a little bit more built up now and um the field in which her body was found has actually just been granted like planning permission so there's going to be a big like housing estate built mm. there and um, I used to play on these fields as well growing up. So it's um, funny how times change. But growing up, um, like that sort of area of fields, there was always a bit like a girl got killed on those fields. But you know when you're like eight or nine and you don't kind of realise the gravity of what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. And there was a little bit of me that was like oh is it true because we also used to say like oh our witch lives in that house and you know stuff like that it became almost um like a myth or folklore of the area 
and for such a long time I hadn't thought about it at all um, and thought of it more as a rumour and then it was only quite recently I brought it up with my mum who was like no that was true um, like it was a lovely little girl and blah 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 and um, the family like my mum knew of she used to work with the mum of the family and and it was all very much real and it was quite a strange almost unsettling feeling to think that something that I had kind of written off as like I say almost mythical or folklore and was actually so true and yeah it's just really sad so I wanted to find out more about Annette's story and the monster that killed her however because it was 1989 that this happened there isn't much on the internet about it at all and from what I can say the not to, not a spoiler but um the guy who did kill her has gone to prison is still in prison and there hasn't been much written about him since he's not um as I know he's not appealed or anything it's just it is what it is in that case so there hasn't been anything written about him so to get sort of my facts and research for this case it took me to a crime magazine called True Crime Detective Monthly where there was actually a feature in 2019 about the case so I had to get a back copy of that and then I was like well I'll see if anything's been written on it written on the case on like websleuths or reddit or anything and there was literally nothing no mention of it at all so plowed through sort of more and more um like sites on the internet but quite often they were referring to um different people of the same names things like that went back and i did manage to find a website that it has really old newspapers like scanned in and you can sign up and you get like a few free and then you have to start paying so um it was really useful to sort of get a bit more of the timeline together and i might actually go back to that website again especially like I wouldn't mind paying yeah, on the odd occasion for, for things like that. So <clears throat> it is actually, let's see if I can find, it's the BNA British Newspaper Archive.co.uk and you sign up and you get like three free newspapers and then after that you have to start start paying. But that has been sort of my only real sources of reference and what my own mother remembers <laughs> so um yeah i hope that you find this interesting so the case really starts on the 18th of july 1989 at 5 p.m when two anglers were at a place called woodhouse farm in carlton a small village north of blackpool and like i said this area is um obviously like you've got like your local pub um a bakery a few sort of little shops um quite a lot of like what we'd call like housing estates or areas mm -hmm. um off it but it's not not particularly big and at that time very much surrounded by fields quite a rural feel to it so these two um, guys, anglers, were angling, fishing, <laughs> at what they said was their favourite pond, when they saw some smoke coming from a track nearby. And they knew the farmer that owned the land, so they decided to tell him. And he had had quite a few problems with kids setting fires and stuff like that, so he went to investigate and he saw some clothing um, had been set alight and it looked like a child's bike but obviously it's, it's, it's on fire so he just phones the police and the police come and investigate and amongst this charred pile they actually find a body of a child so by 9pm there's a full scale search um, they're using like big floodlights and it's, it's really 
the policing in this seems fantastic to be honest really quickly underway and it is very quickly um, confirmed that this is the body of Annette she's nine years old and she's from Poulton Le Fylde, which is about a mile up the road from Carlton depending which end of Bolton she lived in basically and she was reported missing less than two hours earlier so um, they found out she'd been stabbed and sexually assaulted oh that's horrible and obviously like in a very small uh, time frame as well she'd actually gone out to play she took a bike and um, especially sort of in the 80s I think places felt a lot safer than they do now so she was nine years old going out to play with her friends on a bike it was only when her parents realised they hadn't seen her in a little while that they thought oh shit and, and called the called the police and reported her but she had been with some friends and they'd been asking her to like oh come here with us play with us kind of thing and she'd said um no she had to go somewhere else because she had a special meeting so based on this the police thought that she had gone to this area in Carlton with the the intent of meeting the person who had attacked her oh god so they do a bit of investigation by the fire and they find sort of like a little um almost like a shack where someone had obviously been sleeping like sleeping rough there was some cans of beans and some red indian feathers now this was like a huge clue because a man had been seen in the area and was almost like notorious for being odd he would often wear a red indian headdress and it's honestly isn't oh it gosh. you wonder why you've not heard of this yeah. it is so weird um, a lot of people had actually reported him to the police because he'd been talking to kids um, oh. and telling them that he was related to red indians or we also like to say he had royal blood as well and was related to the royal family obviously and none of these are true so this guy wearing an Indian headdress had been seen in the area um, a lot of times sort of traipsing up and down the hill in between Carlton and Paulson and Viles. My mum actually knows um, a few people who gave statements to the police about seeing him in the run up to this crime but he'd also been reported for chatting to children in a way that made the parents feel uncomfortable and um, one lady in particular I believe from the Blackpool area had reported him for offering to show her daughter pornographic material however that actually wasn't illegal at that time um, if it wasn't acted upon oh God. Um, yeah I found um, out that in like part of my research somewhere oh god I don't know where anything is but um, I was a bit shocked to find out that so he was like number one suspect mm. obviously and these two anglers thought that they'd actually seen him because before they noticed the smoke they'd seen a man about 15 minutes before particularly scruffy looking and um, leaving the area and they said that he had got into a green Austin metro car and driven away. So the police have all these leads to look into, but the media jumps on it straight away. And it was quite widely reported at the time, not just um, in the immediate yeah. area as well. So this is the Liverpool Echo. And there's a massive headline that says, Lock up children, families in terror after killer stuck sleepy village. And um, this article in particular goes on to speak a lot about the Green Austin Metro because they had the reg number of it and everything. Wow. And they had that because, surprise, surprise, it wasn't his car and the police knew exactly which car this was. So the car had originally been stolen in the week previous from Thirlmere Avenue which is very close to these fields and it had been reported and the police were looking for it and then they'd found it 
um, three days previously they'd found the car on Sherborne Courts which is again in Carlton it's all very like a small location so the police had found the car and um, alerted the people who it belonged to and stuff like that but said they were going to brush it for fingerprints so the police had left the car very briefly and were coming back and this scruffy young man had got into the car put a sleeping bag of rucksack two old ladies had seen and been like you shouldn't be getting into that car like we don't think it's yours and the police are investigating it and he just kind of grumbled at them and driven off oh my days so these old women had actually like tried to stop him yeah, which was pretty yeah pretty badass but so now they knew the car and they had like a a proper suspect they also believed that this guy had been grooming annette because she had come hurting um a d- couple of days earlier with 60p and her parents had questioned where she'd got that from because that was quite a I lot of money say, for yeah. a nine-year-old to have definitely no time at that at that time um but she said someone at school had given it her and she wouldn't tell her parents so there's a lot of people that believe he was trying to sort of win a trust and like make friends with her kind of thing so um like i said the press had jumped on this it was really widely reported and it was only 8am the next day when the car was actually found in london it was brushed for fingerprints effectively this time and they couldn't find anything but they were still so sure that it was was him so there was warnings to stay away from strangers announcements made in schools and the police decided to release the name of the man they were looking for so the police decided decided to release his name and they said that they were looking for a man called john jeffrey healy so the police were well aware of Healy. He had had run-ins with the law throughout his whole life. And, sorry, that's my dog scratching. And he had actually been um, meant to appear in court mm-hmm. for connections to possessing an offensive weapon in breach of the, pe- of the peace. He was wanted for indecent result, indecent results, indecent assaults related to inappropriate activity with children and he was also awaiting for a trial for burglary. He'd been living in a bedsit in Blackpool and he was known as Indian Johnny because of the red Indian headgear and combat trousers. He was regarded in the local community as like an oddball kind of. Yeah thing um he claimed to be related to like indian warriors and the royal family um and he was known like i said for inviting children to see pornographic material in another incident he'd actually chased a group of parents down the street brandishing a a baseball bat because they'd complained about him wolf whistling at young girls so it was definitely a case of like it the, the signs had been there yeah kind of thing. so he'd failed to report to a probation hostel that he was supposed to go to three weeks earlier in blackburn and so the police were like it's it has to be him like he was in the area he's now disappeared we can't find him so a little bit of investigation led them to find out that he had bought a temporary passport at Poulton Lefile Post Office on the day of the murder, saying to the people at the post office that he was going across the channel. So the French police were alerted and 50,000 posters were printed and sent to France along with those that were already displayed in Britain. And on the 26th of July, so this is all super fast, yeah. um, the magistrates issued an arrest warrant 
um, so that he could be arrested and brought back to England. Um, but they didn't really have to wait that long because he returned of his own accord. Like, he just thought he could go there for a few days and it would all blow over, but he was actually arrested at Dover. On the 28th, he appeared before Blackpool magistrates charged with her murder and he pleaded not guilty. So it went to trial and at Liverpool Crown Court in 1990, he stood before before the court and he was just not taking it seriously. But they built up such a good case um, to him now. They actually had some saliva on cloth found at the scene that matched his DNA. Um, they found some of his fingerprints in the stolen metro and these fingerprints matched fingerprints on the cans found with her body. Um, there was also, I don't know if it's some refer to it as a hostel and some refer to it as a squat, but a place he'd been staying at, at Black, in Blackpool. He'd cut bits out of the curtains and these bits were found with her body. Like there was so many. Oh, wow so unusual yeah so many yeah scraps of blue curtain that had been wrapped around a net a net before she was stabbed almost like in a ritual type thing yeah i've just got to see in the article so they refer to it as a squat that he was staying in in corn street in blackpool and he could match them up like the exact cuts on the material oh, as this trial continues he would pull his tongue out at annette's parents how disgusting and disrespectful and um a screen was actually bought um like into the court to shield the parents from him because he was so so disgusting during the trial um the jury requested to see the crime scene so they were actually taken to these fields in carlton to see it and as a defendant, um, Healy was actually entitled to be present. So he didn't have to be, but he insisted that they take him as well as it was like a fun day out for him. Um, the Blackpool Evening Gazette reported that Healy told he was within his rights to watch the jury and that photographs, photographers would be present. He was outside the van in seconds and strutted to the spot where he'd made a den beneath the overgrow hedge, where he'd lit the bonfire, where he raped and stabbed an innocent schoolgirl to death and tried to burn the body, and he like reveled in the attention. Um, he actually claimed that he was nowhere near the area when that happened. He said he was at the seafront, but the jury didn't believe him at all and they sentenced him to life imprisonment. That sentence was passed on the 15th of May, 1990, and he was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years. So when I read that, I was like, shit, he could be out. I don't think he is. I cannot find anything anywhere that he's been released. If anybody knows different, do let me know. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's, he's still in prison so after the trial um a lot of like newspaper outlets did a bit of a history of him so there was sort of stuff about his upbringing he had been showing behavior likely to cause alarm or distress for a long time and he would befriend children he was known to be violent, like all the things that I've said, but these had been going on since he was like 14, 15. It was... Wow. A, his own sort of sexual interest in children wasn't uh, hidden, but he just hadn't acted upon it. And at that time, I'll see if I can find the bit where it says about him. Different laws. Might have to come back to that. But yeah, he'd um, grown up in and out of care. He was originally born in Chesterfield on, in May of 1959, and he was one of 18 children. So absolutely <laughs> mad, yeah. Um, his parents separated and his mother moved to Manchester 
after he burned, like set a big fire near the house where they were origi- originally from in Chesterfield, like she just moved out of the area. At the age of 10, he was put into care because his mother um, had developed epilepsy and said she couldn't look after him anymore. When he was 11, he was charged with two burglaries. He made five more court appearances before he was 14. When he was 14, he was done with arson, stealing a car without, um, taking a car without consent, stealing a rifle. More burglaries followed. When he was 19, it was aggravated burglary. Um, he stole money from a 16-year-old kid at Knife Point. He briefly moved to London, where he married. Um, but the relationship didn't last. His wife said that he had a split personality and she didn't know who he really was until she married him. Um, after his marriage sort of disintegrated, he moved to Sheffield where he ended up going into prison again in Hull in 1986 and it was then he and moved to Blackpool. He was actually hospitalised at the psychiatric unit at Victoria Hospital briefly um, for paranoid schizophrenia. And his last burglary that we know of before he committed the murder on Annette was just a week before at a shopkeeper's flat. He So he was repeatedly, repeatedly yeah. committing crimes, but they were sort of escalating in intensity um witnesses actually came forward and had seen him and Annette together um likely just moments before she was killed she was pushing her BMX bike and he was just walking along with her so yeah um that is the case really I know that um Annette had a brother who has, like, had to deal with her loss. Mm. Um, He was only very young at the time, but the family, from what I know, still live in the area and are, you know, having to live with that. Um, Super, super, yeah, yeah, um, super, super sad. Her Her father has said that, like, he should hang for what he's done and um, her mum agreed and said that they would like to see capital punishment for him which I can completely understand like if that happened to your child I'm sure Mm. I'm sure you feel the same definitely so yeah it was um, I really um found it particularly haunting because of the area that it was in relation to where I grew up. I can't believe that there isn't more about him because John Jeffrey Healy was horrific. There was so many signs there, but I'm not like blaming the police or anything because they were doing, he was getting punished for everything. He was just unstoppable. Like it wasn't, a failing on anyone's house but that imagery that I've got in my head I couldn't find any pictures of him with like the headdress or anything but this person that you'd see and be like oh they're not right and then actually being right about that yeah exactly I think we've said it before there's a big difference to being sort of like a little bit strange and a little bit odd and to actually being like a violent murderer yeah you know it's um, it's like the Joanna Yates Christopher, what was his name? Jeffries. Jeffries, yeah. yeah. You know, everyone just makes an assumption because of some, how someone acts and looks, but it can mean nothing. But in this yeah. case, it meant a lot. It meant everything, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that is um, the case, and I hope that um, her family are doing okay, and it was, it was just so sad. Yeah, absolutely. There we go. There wasn't, like I said, there wasn't much, um, but I hope that I covered the case as thoroughly as I. Oh, I think you did. Absolutely. I yeah. um, like I said, mm. I've got a few newspaper articles, and I'll I'll send them across to you and yeah. I'll screenshot them so we can 
put them in the sauce yeah there. definitely um it's like you say that i can't believe for how sort of local that is that we like i have no knowledge of that and i yeah. didn't know if it was true or not yeah oh but i God. totally get that yeah. i think you know especially because of your age and you just hear about it in the local area so yeah. you're like is it just an urban legend to scare children or yeah genuinely yeah okay so my case this week is quite a historical one um and it's from very close to where I live now and so it's based in Ormskirk um so and it's the story of two sisters and they're referred to as the Ormshire sisters so it's quite a big case and it's still unsolved so it focuses on Mary and Margaret or Margaret was known as Maggie Ormshire and they were the two eldest daughters those four daughters in the family and the two, Maggie and Mary, were sort of very well known in the area because they never left Ormskirk. Um, and they were referred to as quite odd because, like literally only because they weren't married. So, like now they'd be referred to as probably like boss babes because yeah. <laughs> they ran their own um, sweet and tobacco yeah. shop. I have heard of this case. Oh, have you? Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, because I knew that they ran their own sweet shop before you said it, but I can't remember much. So the two the two sisters um, lived on their own at a place called Ivy Dean, and they it was like they had inherited it from the parents. Yeah. So, like I say, in this day and age, they'd be like you know they have their own property, they have money. And yeah. they've got their own business, but in that time, odd, because they weren't married um, with children. So in Ivy Dean, um, there's just the two sisters. And at the shop, they had a friend called Josephine Mary Whitehouse. And she lived above the, um, the shop with her husband, John Frederick Whitehouse. Now, as part of the sort of general day-to-day running of the shop, Mary would accompany um sorry Mary would be accompanied by Josephine and she'd walk her home every night like she'd walk her to the front door of the house and before Mary would go into the property they'd have to knock on the door and Maggie would let them in and it was always bolted from the inside so it's kind of important to note that now I'll start where this begins so it's Saturday, May 5th, 1956, and Mary had walked the sort of kilometre or so back from the shop to her home at Ivy Dean. Um, But this particular day, uh, Josephine wasn't with her, so she'd been called away. I think she'd gone to Southport for the day. Yeah. So she's she's walking on her own, and as as would as was normal, she would walk home carrying the day's takings from the shop, and she would carry this in a little brown case. So she had like a lot of money would be in this case. So she gets home, and obviously gets into the property. Now, a person called John Wright, who also lived on the same road, he said that he recalled seeing um, Margaret enter the property at about quarter to seven on her own and another person a lady called Mary Jane Sefton had also seen Mary pass past her bedroom window at approximately quarter past ten that evening and again she said that Mary was on her own and she was carrying the brown case and containing the the takings from the shop so at this point like it would have been quite dark like Mm -hmm. so um, Mary had walked home alone in the darkness with a lot of money in this ca- in this case. Now, other neighbours had said that they'd seen her as well, and they'd said that nobody else had been in the vicinity, so they hadn't seen anybody following her or anything. At about 20 past 10 of the same evening, another neighbour had spotted a man across the road from Ivy Dean, where the sisters lived. And within an hour of that spotting, various neighbours said that they heard noises, which included groans, raised voices, both male and female, um, breaking glass and bin lids clattering. And that all emanated from Ivy Dean, 
but nobody had gone to see what was happening. It had just been disregarded. On the Sundays, the next day, May the 6th, um, Josephine Whitehouse had returned from Southport and as she always did, she took a cup of tea to the shop to give to Mary. But she actually found the shop was locked, which was really strange. And by 11am, she was getting like concerned. So she actually decided to walk to Ivy Dean and see what was happening. Now, she knocked on the door and she received no reply. So she went to one of the neighbours, a man called Patrick Cummins, and he started like going around the house and checking and looking through the windows. And he actually spotted a trail of blood. So he told Mrs. Whitehouse, Josephine, to just step back and he'd go inside and have a proper look what was going on. When he got inside, he described the scene later to the Lancashire Evening Post as being absolutely terrible. So he found Mary and Maggie, both of them, in pools of their own blood, still sort of dressed for the evening, like ready to go to bed. Mm. And they'd been battered about the head and the upper body, and there were a number of proposed weapons around them. So there were candlesticks, a wine bottle which had been smashed and a poker and this poker had actually been bent out of shape because of the sort of the the level of violence that had been used. Mary's brown case was found open on the kitchen table and a hundred pounds was missing along with a ring and a watch. Now the only clue that was left at the scene was a single bloody fingerprint and that was found on a shard of broken glass from the wine bottle. Who could have murdered these sweet old ladies? Because that's how they were referred to. Very sweet. Um, I think one of them was referred to as Aunt Polly by all the local kids. So they were very well known, very well respected in the local area. Mm. And as far as anyone could see they had no enemies. So who were the suspects? So the response from the police was like immediate and like really good. Um, They started a large scale manhunt in the area for the killer. And they visited like all the local shops. They checked um, like dry cleaners and things like that to see if anybody had put any blooded clothing in. And they spoke to absolutely everybody. Um, doctors were like asked if they treated anybody for cuts yeah. because of the glass or bruises because of as I said it was so violent that they presumed that the killer would have had some wounds from the attack themselves um, even Liverpool police got involved and um, they visited sort of like lodgings you know like um like what they used to call it like guest houses and things like that to see if there was anybody new to the area that was staying um so yeah they checked absolutely everything and unfortunately they came up with nothing and the only real clue that they had to go on was from um, an 11 year old boy called barry horton who lived opposite the house opposite ivy dean and he actually said that he'd seen a man leaning against a blue bicycle with white mudguards for three nights in a row. And I've got a quote here, he says, I remember him quite clearly. He seemed to be glancing up and down the road all the time. It was last Wednesday that I saw him, um, first at about 10pm, and he must have been there for around half an hour. And I also saw him there again on Thursday and Friday night, but he wasn't there on Saturday. Barry gave quite a detailed description of the man and he said that he looked to be in his 30s, he was about six foot foot tall, he was wearing a trench coat with dark trousers um, and he wasn't wearing a hat but he had dark hair with a clean shaven face. Um, So the police, you know, they have a description but they had nothing else really to go on. They produced about 300 posters and they put them all around Ormskirk and the surrounding areas. They basically just did everything they could, but again, no clear suspect. So it actually came to light that the sisters had run a sideline business as well as the tobacco and sweet shop. So they actually worked as like low level loan sharks for the local area. 
So they had like they had quite a lot of money. So the police found loan slips in the house, um, and that provided a possible motive. Could yeah. somebody that they'd loaned money to in the local area, you know, been un- unable to pay, and so had killed the sisters to cover up the debt? Um, they'd also the sisters had also provided accommodation to evacuees during the war and so police began checking the names of the people that had stayed with them but again nothing came of the investigation so by the end of May the police were again out of ideas um, they were receiving daily anonymous letters about the murder but they had like no fresh clues Um, And no real leads were presenting themselves apart from the ones that I've mentioned. The only thing that they could go on was the one bloody fingerprint that they had. That was the only real piece of evidence that they had to link the killer to the the crime scene. So um, Lancashire police began taking the fingerprints of every man aged over 18 in the Ormskirk area. Um, And but again, they found no one to match the fingerprint. So by September, they had taken over 10,000 fingerprints. Wow. So that's quite, for the time, I think that's mm. really yeah. like impressive and in-depth. And they did have a few people that they questioned in connection, but again, nothing, like, nothing yielded any results. Um, by June of 1957, it was actually revealed that the sisters had been sitting on like a £1,700 fortune, which was kept inside the house. Right. That was the only sort of main motive that they could they could come up with, that it was about the money. Yeah, robbery. Yeah. So I think the police were basically focusing on the fact that these sisters carried cash every single day, um, had somebody followed them, and the main motive, as I mentioned, was money. Had someone like found out about the fortune that they had in the mm. house and how were they waiting till there was less of them there? Cause exactly, they weren't. She wasn't walked home that night. Exactly, yeah. Now, in I'm massively jumping forward here because this case remained unsolved and still does. But um, up until about eighty three, nineteen eighty three, when somebody made an anonymous phone call to the Manchester Evening News. And this person claimed to know the identity of the murderer. Um, so the call was said to have come from an elderly man in his 70s who deeply regretted like not making that phone call sooner. But like from the information that the, that the police got from this man, they had a suspect, a proposed suspect, but when they looked into it, nothing came of it. So to this day, like no one has been arrested in connection to the deaths of Mary and Maggie Ormisher, and it still remains an open case um, for the Lancashire Constabulary wow. to this day. So yeah, I'm short and sweet there, but obviously there's a lot more that you can look into about this case. Um, I think it's really sad that you know these two harmless old ladies were murdered and more than likely just for the cash that they had yeah um but i find it surprising that they've never solved it because ormskirk is quite a small place yeah and like you were saying about carlton at that time you know there's a lot less houses even smaller even smaller extremely rural and so for me i would say it would have to be somebody from the local area that knew that they were going to be like you just yeah, said, yeah, or someone with connections at least. Definitely, the only um thing that I could find out, which was a little bit, and I'm not saying that it's connected at all, was that their father had been involved in quite a big case when he was um when he was younger, and um, to the point where he'd actually been sequestered to travel and been put up like as a key witness which was quite a big thing like they'd paid his wages for the day and for the couple of days they'd put him up in lodgings so he could testify and I was wondering if it could be connected to that like maybe it was a punishment but why would it be so long yeah I think clearly the you know the motive was money Mm. and also you'd think that if it was somebody in the local area that 
other people would have noticed that maybe they had more cash yeah. or they weren't as they weren't as like worried about cash as maybe they were before. I can only think if it was somebody that possibly used to live in the area or grew up in the area, yeah, knew who they were, had moved away to somewhere possibly. like Liverpool, Southport, yeah, yeah, could still easily get back there, you yeah. know, like something like that like definitely a connection to the area definitely but again like over ten thousand people had the fingerprints taken Mm. and there was no you know comeback from that yeah i just find it really strange but i find it i think it's nice that so many years like later that there's still it's still open yeah so the police haven't ruled it out whereas and likely the um perpetrator would be elderly themselves or dad or dad yeah so yeah thank you kelly you're welcome vaguely had heard of it but i didn't know um, it was still unsolved yeah i just knew that two old women had been murdered in the owner's sweet shop (laughs) yeah yeah like i say in the local area it's extremely famous case and there are quite a number of articles about it so if you do want to look into it a bit deeper you know it's quite easy to do fantastic okay well still deciding what you're gonna do next week <clears throat> yeah i've got a good idea um, but you can have a little surprise fantastic and um, hope you all have a nice week and we will see you next week we will indeed bye, bye.